Welcome to Mariner's Church. If this is your first time here or you've been with us for a while, I'm just so glad that you're joining us. One of the things that I love about Scripture, about the Word of God, is that it's not something that you read and finish or that you read and complete, but it's something that you read and contemplate. And no matter how many times you've read it, a book that was written over 2,000 years ago still has relevance for today. And the other day I was reading about Jesus feeding over 5,000 people. It's a common miracle, maybe one that we've heard about before, but Jesus teaches over 5,000 people and it's towards the end of the day and the people are getting hungry. And so the disciples are skeptical and they say, Jesus, why don't you just send these people away? We don't have food. The need is great. We're coming up short, Jesus. And yet a little boy comes with two fish and five loaves and Jesus does a miracle. He brings what he had, and Jesus does the increase. Sometimes I think we can focus so much on what we've lost that we forget what we have. And what we have may not seem like much. It's only a little faith. It's only a little praise. It's only a little worship. It's only a little prayer. I God, I'm here, and it doesn't seem like much. I'm tuning in. I'm bringing my prayers and my praise, but... This is all I have. And I want to remind you today that with less of you, there's more of God. So bring what you have. Bring the faith. Bring the praise. Bring the worship. Bring your sacrifice to the Lord and watch Him do more and more. So come on, church. Let's turn our hearts and our eyes and fix our eyes on Jesus. Give Him the praise that He deserves.
Jesus, we're so grateful that every word, every promise is true. And because of the work that you accomplish on the cross, we can trust you. We can give our hearts to you. We can look to you. So be glorified as we sing, as we worship you.
this resurrected king who resurrects me daily the source for our life the source of our strength God we look to you so with hands of gratitude with a posture of faith God we look to you and we lift our hands with greater surrender with greater worship we look to you and we sing I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in all of the one who gave it all I'll stand my soul Lord to you surrendered all I am is yours I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in all of the
Sometimes, when life comes at us hard, we are tempted to believe that the battle we are facing is one we have to fight alone. And we know that being overwhelmed and that feeling of despair and hopelessness make it seem like no one will understand. But we want you to know that you are not alone. You are more than your broken relationships. You are more than your addiction. You are more than your mental health struggles. You are more than the grief that you feel. You are more than the losses you've had. And most importantly, we believe in a God who is bigger than all these things. And He desires to know us and grow us in these struggles. There is a place for you, for all of us, with care and recovery. We desire to walk with you through the doors that have seemed closed to you for so long. We offer a variety of support groups, groups of people to walk with you through addiction, and spaces to seek healing in and from broken relationships. Whether it's grief, a struggle with mental health, divorce, an addiction of some kind, codependency, none of us are untouched from the realities of this life. And none of us stand outside the need to be cared for and the need for recovery and refuge from the pain that we carry. And there is healing, hope, and community here for you. I love what Jack said, and it is true. We are here for you. And I'm very excited about what Eric has announced, that we get to meet together up on the lawn. And it'll be as safe as it can be. We'll have social distancing and there'll be masks, but we'll get to gather together again. And I'm very excited about that because you can imagine it, can't you? That's what I love about our imaginations. Our imaginations give us the ability to, to just go places. And in times of stress, like we live in with COVID and with our jobs, now schools and you have to distance learn. Now we're in the process of a whole election cycle and all that stress. It's so nice in your imagination to be able to just instantly travel and you can just be in Hawaii snorkeling with the fish or you can be in the mountains hiking. And in just that moment, stress begins to uh, dissipate and it seems like you're inspired and there's creativity. I love our imagination, but our imaginations also have a shadow side, don't they? I mean, in those moments when there's stress, we can begin to catastrophize and we can wind up stress. Or when we're driving in our cars and somebody cuts us off, we can begin to imagine that our cars have lasers and we just shoot them at the person and kill them. Or when someone hurts us, we can smile at them, but in our minds, we can just imagine that they're becoming smaller and smaller and smaller and speaking with a squeaky voice. Or when our jobs get really rough and our boss isn't fair, we can imagine that we win the lottery and we get to just walk into his office and tell him what he can do with that job. And then also when we're in stress, we can use our imaginations for lust. We can commission our imaginations to begin to make a movie in our mind where we play the starring role. And we know that it's a problem. And we're in a series titled The Seven Deadly Sins. And these are deadly because for all of us, even if we're Jesus followers, these destroy our lives. And so we're gonna to talk today about lust because Jesus identified it as a deadly sin. We're gonna look at Matthew 5. And the context for Matthew 5 is this, that Jesus is trying to explain to people why God gave us his word, the law. And we know why the, God gave us the law. I mean, when Jesus summarized the whole law, he said, the purpose of the law is that you would learn to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and that you would love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so the purpose of the law is that we would be loving people. And so he's speaking to these people and he's going to talk about what is the most deadly, destructive thing to love. So look at what he says. And he surprised people in the first century. And I think it will surprise you today. He says, and he said, you have heard it. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. And I'm sure people are nodding their heads saying, that's right. You know, adultery, you end up in the wrong bed with the wrong person. That's going to destroy love. But then he goes on and he says, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Here he speaks very directly and he surprises us in this passage because I think then and now the problem is for most people, we simply do not believe that lust is a problem. A little pornography, a little fantasy, I mean, really, what can be wrong with that? And Jesus is saying it is absolutely deadly. It will destroy your relationships and it will destroy your heart. Now in this passage, Jesus is not saying that adultery and lust has the same consequences. And he is not saying, he is not condemning healthy sexual desire. And he is not saying that lust is finding someone attractive. And he is not speaking just to men. But what Jesus is saying, when you commission your mind to make a movie where you play a starring role, he says that's lust and it destroys love. It destroys your relationship. It destroys your relationship with God. It destroys you. So just in a moment of honesty, how many of you know what lust is? I told you, it's when you make a movie in your mind. So how many of you would say, you know someone who has lusted? How many would say, I've lusted? Oh, it's just me, right? Not anybody. We all do. And so Jesus surprises us saying, there is more, one, more than one way to destroy love. Adultery isn't the only way. Our, through our imaginations, we can destroy love. And he says, it's deadly. And I don't think that Jesus literally means that you should tear out your eye because a blind person can still fantasize and lust. But he's saying it cannot be tolerated. So I want you to see what the Bible says about the process for lust. So I'm going to show that to you. And then I also want you to see that the research today backs up exactly what the Bible says about how destructive lust is. So first of all, what does the Bible say about lust? This is in James 1. You can read it on your own. I'm just going to summarize it for you. He says in, uh, in James 1 that it begins with a trigger or with a temptation. God does not tempt us, but God does give us desires. And these desires are good things. And we know that they're good. We have a desire for food, for shelter and security. We have a desire to be successful and to accomplish things. We have a desire for love and intimacy. The problem is, is because we are broken people, our desires tend to become controlling desires or, they be, or we let our desires go wild. And when our desires go wild, literally the word is epi, epithumias, which is the exact word that Jesus used in Matthew 19 for lust. It is a desire gone wild. And when we let our desires go wild, there's a temptation, then we let the desires go wild, we ultimately run into sin. And so food, 
when we let that desire run wild, it becomes gluttony. Shelter and security, when we let that desire become a controlling desire, it turns into materialism and we just become consumers. Success, run wild, becomes power and autonomy and comparison. And love, when that desire runs wild, becomes lust and selfishness and it destroys us. And so what James says is that we have this trigger, desires because we're broken. We let these desires run wild. That action, the Bible calls sin. And with sin always brings shame and guilt, shame. We don't feel worthy of connection and guilt, the heaviness of our sin. And as a result of that, we isolate. And so now we're alone. And then the Bible says we experience death. And death isn't physical death, it's spiritual death, and it's not eternal death, but literally we bring hell on earth. We experience the consequences of death where we're alone and we're lost. We feel isolated and we become enslaved by that sin and it becomes an addiction. So that's the cycle the Bible talks about. And what's amazing is research backs it up and the exact same thing they say happens. Research says there's a trigger. We see something, we let our imaginations go wild or the way the Bible says, we let the desires run wild. So there's pornography or lust or we actually act out on it. And here's what's interesting. They found out that when we let our imaginations run wild, that our bodies produce dopamine and dopamine is a mood elevator and it's a psychological reaction. And what happens is it affects our brain. So we feel good, we feel alive, we feel excited. And dopamine's not a bad thing. So when you are able to accomplish something and you have this sense of excitement, I did this, I accomplished it. Your brain releases, your body releases dopamine. But the problem is, is that it works in pornography or lust. And so you have this feel good hit. And we understand it. I mean, we are all living with massive amounts of stress these days. I mean with school and distance learning. I can't even imagine the stress that that causes. And then the whole economy, stress, COVID and our jobs, now with an election cycle, and there is not gonna be any college football, which is just wrong. And as a result of all this stress, there's just one thing, we all just want to feel good. We just wanna feel good. And so in our minds, we go, so what's wrong with a little lust, a little pornography, because it releases dopamine and it makes us feel good and it elevates our moods and we feel excited and these things are good. But the problem is, is that this longing doesn't just stop because lust is never satisfied. We want more and more and, it, and lust cannot be satisfied. And ultimately when you want do dopamine and you don't get it, you feel depressed and anxious without it. You feel alone and so again, you feel, you isolate, and they say then we feel shame, unworthy of connection, we feel the sense of guilt, and so ultimately you jump into more lust, and as a result of it, it becomes a compulsion, and then it becomes an addiction. That's what science says. In fact, if you wanna learn more about it, there's a great website, fightthenewdrug.org, fightthenewdrug.org. And so go on it, and they explain this. But here's what's amazing, both the Bible and science say the same thing. Lust becomes an addiction that ultimately destroys you, it isolates you, and it enslaves you, and it destroys love. So both say the same thing. So the question then is, what will we do? How do we 
destroy or ultimately overcome lust and live with love in our life. So the Bible tells us, and there's two simple things. First, we've got to have a new mindset. And secondly, we have to have a new lifestyle. First, a new mindset. In Romans 12, one and two, it says that our goal in life is that we want to live giving our whole lives to the Lord in worship. This is what we wanna do. And so it says, don't be conformed or pushed into the world's mold, but be transformed by the changing of your mind, the way that you think. So we wanna change the way that we think. So I want you to show, I wanna show you a biblical way of thinking when it comes to sexuality and marriage and love. And uh, so we're gonna look at what Jesus said. Now, Jesus was asked about marriage. And when Jesus was asked about marriage, he literally quoted what was said in Genesis. So what I'm gonna read to you is what Jesus said 2,000 years ago, but he's quoting what was written 4,000 years ago. And it shouldn't surprise you that when, I, when we read this, you're gonna see that this highly conflicts with what our culture believes. But you need to understand, this has been true for 4,000 years. The Bible has always been offensive to every culture. And when God talks about sexuality, and about marriage and these things, it collides not just with our culture, it has collided with cultures for thousands of years. And it shouldn't surprise us because we are broken people and we tend to run from God. And ultimately God wants to teach us how to be loving people. And so this is the way we were designed to live. And so as Jesus followers, this is the way we need to learn to think. Our culture is never gonna think this way, it shouldn't surprise us, but this is the way that we need to think. So in Matthew 19, when Jesus was asked about marriage, this is what he says, and it's so powerful. He says, haven't you read the scriptures? Okay, now Jesus replied, they record from the beginning. This is way back in Genesis two. God made them male and female. Now there are three truths in this passage that I use in every wedding ceremony. And for those of you that are married, I'm gonna say this three times during the message just so that you get it in your brain. These are the three powerful foundational truths for marriage, and it is a way to build a healthy marriage. First, God made them male and female. God created humanity in a complementary pair, femininity and masculinity. And the first thing that is designed in marriage is that we are to celebrate the difference that God has created. Marriage is not a place of conformity, it is a celebration of the diversity that God's created. And we'll talk more about that in a couple minutes. Then secondly, he says, for this reason, this explains why, what? That God made a complementary pair that a man leaves his father and mother. Prior to this, the most important relationship was with your parents. That's no longer true in marriage. Now the primary relationship is with his wife. He leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one, since they are no longer two, but one. So the whole purpose in marriage is for two people to become one. It's not conformity, but it's the pursuit of uh, common dreams and common values. They share adventures together. And God gives sexuality as a way to create this spiritual bond of oneness. And we're gonna see as we move forward. And so what happens is, because of sin, sin automatically creates a gravitational pull 
so that we move towards isolation, but marriage is where we are to push away from that gravity and we are to learn to love another person. We put them ahead of ourselves and we love them. So the pursuit, the goal of marriage is oneness, celebration of a complimentary prayer. And then he says in the passage, Jesus says at the end, uh, so let no one split apart what God has joined together. The third value in marriage is fidelity and purity. And so every marriage is a story of how God brought two people together. But the most important thing is there must be boundaries in a marriage that protects the purity and the fidelity. You don't sparkle around other people. You don't have certain conversations. You draw great boundaries so you protect the love that God has given to you in your marriage. Now, here's the implication. Sex is a gift from God. It celebrates two hearts becoming one and all sexual activity in the Bible is limited between one man and one woman in the confines of a lifelong commitment in marriage. And so what the Bible says and God says is all sex outside of marriage is off limits. That means premarital sex, teen sex, same sex, multi-partner sex, lust, pornography, all these things are out of balance. Now, I wish that I could see your face right now because every time I've said that, and what I love is when I talk to college students and I say it, typically one will go, what? Are, are you kidding me? That is so prudish. God couldn't mean that. I mean, there's no way that God would expect us to live with unfulfilled desires. But God does. I mean, the truth is, think about it. We all live with unfulfilled fulfilled desires. We can't just eat everything that we want. We can't just buy anything that we want. And we can't just be involved sexually anytime, anywhere. We have to live with unfulfilled desires. And this runs contrary to what the world says because God says, you are not an animal and a desire is not a destiny. It is just a desire and we have to manage our desires. Now, I want you to see what uh, the Bible says to make this really clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at what it says, because this just, again, it runs into what our culture says. And it is not, you're not, I mean, this is where we're very different from our culture. So Paul says, you say, and he's speaking to people in Corinth, which is much like our culture today, I'm allowed to do anything. See, now that's just not a true statement. I'm not allowed to do anything. You know, it I hurt myself if I just go out and do anything. I'm selfish when I just do whatever I want. I can't just eat what I want, but not everything is good for you. And I must not become a slave to anything. Ultimately, just like we saw, you become a slave if you just do anything. And he says, here's the argument, and this is the argument you hear in culture. Food was made for the stomach, the stomach was made for food. So it's like, you know what? I'm made to eat, so I should eat and I can eat whatever I want. And obviously the argument is, and my body is made for sex, so I can have sex. I should have sex anytime I want. But he says, but you can't say that your bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord and the Lord cares about your bodies. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually part of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. Don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? You see what he's saying? 
What happens when you are sexually involved with a person? You create a bond to be enjoyed for the rest of your life or to be endured for the rest of your life. You become one. That's the purpose. We saw that in Genesis. For the scriptures say, the two are united into one, but a person who is joined to the Lord is one in spirit with him. So run from sexual sin. So here, Paul says, you are not made for sexual immorality. You know what sexual immorality, that word is, is pornea. We get our word pornography. So you're not made for pornography, for fantasy, for lust, for illicit sex, premarital sex, sex outside of marriage, same-sex marriage, multiple partners. You are not made for that. And you go, well, does it include? Yeah, it includes. What about, yeah, that too. It includes all those things. That's what he says in this passage. Sexuality is designed for one man, one woman in the confines of a lifelong commitment in marriage. And Paul, Paul says, your body was made for the Lord. So you, when you get involved with sexual immorality, you're, you are hurting yourself, you're hurting others, you're hurting your relationship with God. So it creates a spiritual bond. And so the best way I know to illustrate it uh, is this. So if you have tape and you stick tape to something and then you tear it off, it loses its ability to, uh, to be that adhesive. It loses some of its strength. So then if you try to use the tape again and stick, it loses some stickiness and then again and again and pretty soon. And so he's saying, if you get involved sexually with multiple people, you're losing your ability to connect because sex is given as this great gift in marriage so that two hearts are connected as one. Another illustration that I love to use is uh, I'll take people and you just take a little uh, dot of super glue and you put it in their two fingers. And so as soon as they hit, they're stuck together. That's what God gives us sex is a way for them to literally be bonded together. But then if you pull it apart, it literally will rip part of that skin. And if you would put another piece of glue, it would tear it and then another one and it would tear it and you would literally be hurting yourself. My favorite way to illustrate it when I used to work with college kids is I would say to girls, because usually it's the guy who's pressuring the girl to get involved sexually. And I say, look at if a guy's pressuring you to be involved sexually, here's what you should do. Just walk him over to the freezer and say, and open up the freezer door and say, look at what I'd like you to do is put your tongue right there on the freezer. And you know, as soon as he does that, it's going to bond. The tongue is going to freeze to it. And then lovingly grab him by his shoulders and just say, this might hurt a little bit, and then just pull really hard. And what will happen is he'll leave a little piece of his tongue right there on the freezer and say, that's what you're asking me to do to get involved. Literally, it's going to tear a part of my heart because there's a bonding that takes place. This is the way that Jesus' followers are to think about sexuality, that it is this great gift given by God to create a union in marriage, that any other use of it is out of bounds. And it is because God loves us that he tells us that this is so important. And if you doubt it, one of the things you ought to do is go back and read the story of King David, starting in 2 Samuel 11, because he was a man who let lust run wild, and it destroyed his life, it destroyed his family's life, it ruined his reputation. At 50 years old, he just unwound all the good that he did in his life because he did not control 
the lust in his life. It absolutely destroys a life. So the question is, what do we do? What do we do with this, this pressure, this desire that tends to run wild? So here it is. You run. You run from sexual sin and you run to God's grace and God's people. So run. That's the simple solution. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. What's the one strategy that God gives for sexual immorality? Lust, letting your imagination run wild. Run. All other sins, God says, here's, I've given you a strategy to fight it. I've given you uh, spiritual weapons. Not in this one. It says there's no spiritual weapons. There's no strategy. It is simply to run, to flee, to escape. And the best way that I know to run from sexual sin is just to wear, you know, I talked about in anger, I wear a rubber band. And also, if I'm struggling with lust, I wear a rubber band. And if my mind starts to wander, I just snap myself like that because that hurts when you do it. And what it does is it works against that dopamine hit. And so instead of, you know, that mood elevator, it's just go, now that's going to stop right here. And it's sort of mechanical, but it's, at least it works for me. But you have to find a way that first it is you run. You run from sexual immorality. You flee it. You stay away from any situation that's going to cause your imagination to run wild or you start thinking things that you shouldn't think. The second thing that you're to do is to run to God's grace. Now, if you've kind of been lost in everything that I've said, this is the most important thing I'm going to say all day. And it is this, that no one has the ability. You can't self-discipline yourself to purity. You can't try harder to purity. You can't earn your way to purity. The only way that you can live a pure life is by depending on God's grace. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the first century, when people would have heard temple, temples were the most spectacular architecture in the world. And in Corinth, they had one of the most spectacular temples in the whole known world at the time. And a temple, you know what a temple is? A temple is a place where heaven meets earth. It's a place that God lives. It's a place that God owns, a temple. And so he's saying, don't you realize that your body physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. Now, I think for all of us, when we read this, we think my body is no temple. And the reason that we don't think that we are holy and we are pure, because that's, you know, if it's a temple, it's got to be holy and pure is because of what we do. You know, we know that We've got these desires that corrupt us. We let our imaginations go. You know, we've done just a lot of things that make ourselves unholy. But in this passage, he doesn't say we're holy because of what we've done. Why does it say that we're holy? You realize your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you. We are holy and we are pure because of who lives inside of us. It is not because of what we do. It's because that God comes into our hearts and through his grace, he is giving us a new heart. He 
not only makes us pure, he is working every day to create a pure heart in us. And so we don't have to try harder. We don't have to work harder. We don't have to earn it. God, through his grace, is transforming us, creating a new heart, giving us the very power to be the pure people that we want to be. So based on God's grace, look at what he says. This gets so exciting. For you do not belong to yourselves. For God bought you with a high price. You were loved by Jesus. He gave his life for you. So you must honor God with your body. He's not saying double down, try harder, you know, use self-will, discipline yourself. You know, he's not saying that. He's saying embrace God's good grace in your life, that he is making you a pure person. He has created purity in your life and embrace the purity that he's already given to you. So you've been right. So honor God with your body. That's what he's saying in this passage. So first you run from it and then you run to God's grace. That's the most important thing. And then the next thing is that you run to relationships and community. So if you're a married person, you just need to do, so it's the third time we're gonna go through or second time, what do you need to do if you're a married person? You run to your marriage to be a pure person, to, to live in the grace that God's given you. So what does that look like? Well, first, it means that you celebrate the, the beauty of the diversity that God's created in your marriage. You affirm it. Guys, affirm the femininity in your wife, the wonderful qualities that God has made. Women, affirm the masculinity in your husband. And every day make a list of three to five things that you love about your, fa- your, your spouse. Affirm in them that sense of diversity that God has created. In that way, you are building a strong marriage. There's just three things that God gives us to build a great marriage. First, celebrate the diversity. You're not the same people, different. You know, there's books, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, all of that. The whole point is celebrate that, celebrate it. The second thing is pursue oneness. And it is not that hard. You know how to pursue oneness. And I know that because that's what you did when you were dating. I want, to sh- I, want to sh- I want to show you how easy it is to pursue oneness. They did a study. They took couples on a marriage retreat and they, they had couples run a three-legged race together. So they had to learn to work together, you know, function as one unit in race. Then secondly, they had to push a cylinder with their head in a race against other couples. The couples that did that, this is crazy, but listen, they increased there was an increased, measurable increase of love feelings. They had more relational satisfaction and they had a more active sex life. Look at that. So imagine if those simple things created oneness, what would happen if you just took a walk together? What if you went on adventures together? What if you learned some things together, went on a bike ride? Uh, what if you cleaned the kitchen together? <laughs> See, I wish all the women are going, yeah, right now. Um, all experiences, but imagine if you joined a life group together, you went on a serve event, you went on a mission trip together. These things create oneness. Oneness, you know, sin makes us move towards isolation, but we chart a course towards oneness. And then the third thing that God says to have a great marriage is that you got to pursue fidelity and purity. Celebrate the story of God bringing your, the two of you together, and you must create healthy, 
boundaries. There's no other, there's no relationship that's more important than the relationship in your marriage. You've got to protect the conversations that you have. You don't want to sparkle around other people. You've got to create healthy boundaries so that you protect your marriage. God says that's the greatest way. Why would a married couple allow the frequency of sex to diminish in their married life? Because oh, I know, I know, because you're tired or you're stressed, this whole COVID thing. But you know, really the number one reason? Fantasy. Fantasy and pornography, because it's easier. It's easier to be isolated. It's easier to be alone. It's harder to have a relationship. And then if you're single, look at what God's word says. For all the singles, you, so you also are complete through your union with Christ. Singles, what you must know is that marriage does not complete anyone. You are complete when you have a relationship with Jesus. There is no perfect soulmate and marriage does not complete you. And then look at what it says in 1 Timothy 4. Be an example to all believers in what you say, in the way you live, in your love, in your faith, and in your purity. Depending upon God, God is working that purity in your life. And as a result of that, keep a close watch on how you live for the sake of your own salvation so that you're growing and becoming the person you want and the salvation for those who hear you. The best way for you to live as a follower of Jesus and making an impact and changing the world is to live a pure life. All of us are called to live with unfulfilled desires. Don't think as a single person, oh my gosh, God's calling me. Everyone has to live with certain desires unfulfilled. We have broken people. We have all sorts of crazy desires. We have to live with unfulfilled desires. And then third, run towards community. It says in Proverbs, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. Loneliness is a feeling. Isolation is a choice. Loneliness is a feeling. But isolation is a choice. And we are as sick as our secrets. And when we isolate and we are alone, we are so dangerous. We have to have people that we can depend on who will help us. And my whole life, I've had people that I could run to and I can talk to. So for Lori and I, practically, this is what we've done our whole life. We knew, we talked about it when we first got married. We understood that dangers and what would break apart a marriage. So the first thing that we did is we invested in our marriage and we did what God said. Here's the third time through those three things. We celebrate the diversity that God's created. We regularly write lists of what we love about the other person. I'm always affirming Lori's femininity. What I love, she's affirming my masculinity. We affirm the differences that God has created in us. We try to embrace that diversity. Secondly, we pursue oneness and we work hard at it because it's a hard thing. So we do adventures together. We ride bikes together. We've gone on mission trips together. We've been in life groups together. We do things together to pursue oneness. And then the third is that we pursue fidelity and purity. When I was a kid, I thought that I'd get married and I wouldn't have a problem with lust ever again. And then I got married. And then I thought, you know, when I get old, then I won't have a problem with lust and it'll just go away. Now I'm old and I'll tell you, it doesn't go away. So what are you gonna do with your life? You've got to put up guardrails. 
I remember as a young pastor, I read uh, the story of Billy Graham. And Billy Graham, his ministry was, you know, expanding to a worldwide ministry. And he put specific guardrails up in his life. And I thought, if they're good enough for him, I'm going to just do what he did. And so he didn't counsel women. He didn't go to lunch with people of the opposite sex. He, con he, had, he controlled the kind of conversations that he had around people of the opposite sex and even how he spoke about his wife. He was always accountable uh, with his schedule. I basically did all those things because I wanted those kind of boundaries. Love is about creating boundaries and guardrails. And that's the way we pursue, pursue fidelity and purity in our marriage. And then I always had a group of guys that I was accountable to, that I would talk honestly about my life, my struggles. And then most importantly, what Lori and I do is that we run to God's grace on a daily basis. We run to him for forgiveness, for the love that we need. We run to him for the grace. We depend upon him to create the purity in our life. I know that Lori runs to God. And I know that she has the Holy Spirit living in her and he's transforming her life. And when I'm focused on that, I do not try to change her. And that, cause I'm not God and I shouldn't be doing that. And I can't transform a heart anyway. And I run towards God. And so I want you to join me right now in running to God. I mean, the statistics are staggering. There are more people turning to fantasy, using their imaginations in an inappropriate way because of the stress of COVID, the economy, schools, jobs, all of it. The facts are just there. And so, but, but we can be people that have pure hearts. And the way that we do that is we cry out to God and we say, God, would you create in me a clean heart? a new heart, a fresh heart. Will you pray with me? And I want you to pray with me this prayer. God, would you create in me a clean heart? Would you wash me clean? Would you make me new? Would you sweep through with your grace and do what only you can do? God, we can't try harder. We can't be better. We can't shame our way to a new life. We can't guilt ourselves. We can't, we've tried and we've fallen and we've taken a hold of things and now they have a hold of us and they are destroying us. So God, we come to the only place where we can find freedom. You, would you create a clean heart? Would you purify our heart? Clean us and make us new sweep through our life. And every day, would you remind us that it is only in your grace and your strength. God, would you free your people right now from the bondage of shame that makes them feel that they're unworthy of relationship. The guilt that Satan uses to just twist into their heart that says you've got to try harder and be more. And would they run to your grace and say, God, only you, only you can give to us a pure heart. And God, when you do, we are pure. We are your loved sons and daughters. We are made new and we stand before you holy, not because of what we've done, but because you live in us and you change us. You are such a good God. 
We are so grateful. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You unravel me with a melody Surround me with a song Of deliverance from my enemies Till all my fears are gone I'm no longer a slave to fear Ciao.
It's so great to sing that truth into our hearts, isn't it? I am a child of God, and I am free and loved because of him. Would you hold out your hands and receive God's blessing? Father, look at your children. They love you. Would you bless them and keep them, hold them fast with your love? Would you cause your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them? And God, would you lift up the light of your countenance? Would you turn your attention towards them? And when they cry out in their brokenness and pain because they've fallen again, would you reach down low and pick them up so we can walk in your grace and God give them your peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in God's grace.